I'm the host of A People's Theology, Mason Menega. In this episode, I talk with Karen Gonzalez. Karen is a writer, speaker, and immigrant advocate who immigrated from Guatemala as a child. She is also the author of the recent book, Beyond Welcome, centering immigrants in our Christian response to immigration. You can get connected with Karen and her work in the links in the episode description. If you're a fan of A People's Theology, it would bring me no greater joy than if you gave the podcast a five-star rating and review. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, if you feel so inclined, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Meninga. There are multiple tiers with wonderful rewards, including papers I write to even a book club. Enough of my rambling. Enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. Today, I have Karen Gonzalez with me. Not only am I the biggest fan of Karen Gonzalez, but Karen, you do incredible things in the world. You are an immigrant advocate and you do so much more. But who is Karen Gonzalez to Karen Gonzalez? (laughs) Let's see. I am. I'm an immigrant. That is an identity that I hold uh, near and dear. So I live in this liminal space. You, it sounds like you've been to seminary before. I feel like only seminarians <laughs> use liminal space. Liminal space, yes. So I live in that tension of not being from here nor being from there, which I experienced quite firsthand this summer when I went to Guatemala. I would say, too, I am an immigrant daughter, too, which is it's an identity that's hard for people to relate to, but there's just a lot of pressure, a lot of sense of what you owe your parents for what they sacrificed Mm. uh, for you. And on a lighter note, you know, I am also um, a writer, a speaker. I am kind of inadvertently became a public theologian on this subject. (laughs) So, and soon to be a student, hopefully in a PhD program in Christian ethics. So, (laughs) I'm so excited for you. That's amazing. Yes, me too. I love that. You said you went back to Guatemala recently. How often do you go back to Guatemala? You know, I go back pretty frequently in the last few years, probably every six months. But this summer, I was able to go down for six weeks and live down there because I was between jobs. And so it worked out really well. And I really felt that experience. You know how here in the United States, we know that it's a microaggression to say to people, where are you from, right? Mm-hmm. Well, in Guatemala, people ask me all the time where I was from. <laughs> and I would say, I'm from here. And they're like, really? Mm. <laughs> and I'd say, yes, really. I just left for whole bunch of years and I live in the United States and then they're like oh and I said that's right I said when I'm here you guys tell me that I'm not Guatemalan enough but in the United States they tell me that I'm not American enough so again Mm. we come back to liminal space that's right that's (laughs) right just so you know I'm a bit of a foodie I just love all sorts of different kinds of foods uh when you go back to Guatemala let's say I went to Guatemala with you one time all right Mm-hmm. And you're like, this is the place you have to go if you want the true Guatemalan food experience. What's the place you would take me to? All right. So honestly, I would take you to this place. It's not too far from the city, but it's in a different region called San Lucas. Okay. Zacatepeques. And this place has a, a sort of outdoor market, but it's covered and it's called... El Monumento, the monument, because there used to be a monument there before some earthquake. And they have, it's street food, but it is so good. And they have every single Guatemalan specialty. You can sit there and watch women make tortillas Mm. from scratch. (laughs) Everything that is good in the world, I would take you there to eat and try. And then they make this drink out of corn. It's kind of like a corn chowder, but it's sweet. 
Mm. Um, and that is my favorite thing to have at the very end, right as we're <laughs> leaving with a really hot cup of corn elote. There is something about that part of the world where corn is just life and it is amazing. Absolutely. Do you know? Have, have you seen that video summer... about the, the corn kid? Yes. You, <laughs> the the, you Guatemalans are the true corn kids in the world. You're not kidding. Do you know that this summer, part of the reason why I went was I studied Cachiquel, which is the Mayan language from the region okay. where my father is from. And I found out that in Cachiquel, in the Mayan language, Guatemala is not called Guatemala. It's called Ishimulef, which is a word that means land of corn. And that's ah. how the Mayans refer to where they lived. <laughs> that's amazing. I love it. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about the book. All right. Okay. You recently wrote a book called Beyond Welcome, Centering Immigrants in Our Christian Response to Immigration. I think it's incredible. Uh, we, we've chatted before on the podcast about immigration and Christianity and all of this before. This is your best book. All right. I just have to say it's your okay. best book. It's so good. <laughs> in the book, obviously, you're talking all about immigration, but you also really dive in the Bible a lot. So is there mm -hmm. anything in the research that came up as you were writing the book that you learned? Maybe it's about immigration. Maybe it's about the Bible, but anything in that sort of research uh, that came up while you're writing where you're like, wow, I had no idea about that around immigration or I had no idea about that, about the Bible. So, yes, this happened to me when I was writing specifically about land, because what I decided to do was consult a lot of uh, indigenous theologians. Well, before I did that, I had been doing research on the Maya because, again, right, this part of my my heritage and what I found out was that for the Mayas, they never considered human beings at the very epitome of creation uh, in the way that, for example, the Western world did when you think about something like the Renaissance, right, where the humans mm -hmm. and the human body, right? Well, for them, there were two things at the very top of the creation, and that was uh, the human beings and the land. And so the land took care of the human beings and the human beings took care of the land. And that's how they lived. And so to me, this was really shocking in the sense that they're looking at land, at the creation as this living, breathing thing to honor, respect, and so a lot of their practices around farming and everything were around that. So fast forward to writing the book and, and looking up theologians who are indigenous, not just uh, Mayan creation myths and things like that. And I discovered that it's the very same thing, that they mm -hmm. view land in this way. And it's, uh, it seems to be sort of endemic to North American, Mesoamerican, South American indigenous peoples that this is how you live in relation to the land. And so the land has no owners. Yes, mm. there are, you know, indigenous people who lived in this area or that area or who were nomads, migrated, but there was even a theologian, uh, an, uh, sorry, an indigenous chief who was asked, you know, how, about the cost of land. And he said, how do you sell land? That's like selling air. It's mm. not a commodity. And so that to me was just like really like mind blowing information because it's so contrary to the way that we've been taught to look at land as a commodity, mm -hmm. as something you buy, trade, sell, it belongs to us, but not in a way that, no, this is a gift from God and we care for it and it cares for us. And we have to honor and respect it. We can't exploit it. We can't make it overproduce or, you know, even some of the practices that I, I learned about where they wouldn't, they would only take what they needed at the harvest and leave the rest to replenish the land. And this is something that, of course, Westerner, Western Europeans saw and thought, these people are lazy. Why don't they harvest everything and take everything? Mm -hmm. But as we know, the land needs nutrients, right? Mm -hmm. To to, to continue to care for the humans. And so, yeah, 
that was the most mind blowing thing for me. Mm. There's so many ways I could go from that. Uh, first <laughs> off, I just want to say the idea of there's no owners of the land. I want to bookmark because I actually have a question related to that towards the end. But okay. the other thing around that is, uh, you know, I, I've been learning over the last few years that if we're actually going to adequately address climate change, we actually have to reimagine our relationship to other organisms, which also includes the organisms of the land. And we can't just like go green or whatever, right? Like we can't mm -hmm. just continue to have the same sort of capitalist methods and relationship that we have um, and then just do a green version. We actually have to radically reimagine it because the Western capitalist understanding of land has completely warped the way we think about land and think about other organisms. And it has then contributed directly to then the way that we've absolutely destroyed it to the point where now the climate is uh, changing and is growing more inhospitable. The climate is not now more inhospitable to all creatures, all living things in this world. Uh, and so anyway, that's just a, a thought I have. I don't know if you have any more uh, to say around that, but I, I really love the way that you bring that out because we actually have to reimagine the relationship that we have with the land if we're actually going to address something like climate change. Mm -hmm. Yeah, completely. And no, I, I agree with that, that, you know, this whole land back movement, we should all support it for our very survival. It's mm -hmm. not a kindness or it's not some sort of, you know, liberal agenda, quote unquote. It's really uh, the key to our survival. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And there's, yeah, there's so much that I learned about that as well. But really, if we don't reimagine the way that we think about land, if we don't live in a way where we honor and respect the land. And, you know, I was I came to faith in the evangelical church largely and and we were taught all these things about land were just this new age teachings and <laughs> things that were not Christian. And honestly, I the deep dive that I had to do to write the chapter in that book, I learned that it's actually quite the opposite. You know, so few things can you say, well, this is biblical. But it is biblical to view the land as not belonging to us. Mm. That is actually a biblical thing. And there is so much in the story of the Israelites with God in terms of their relationship to the land. And any time that they would exploit people or use the land as a source of oppression, as a source of exploitation, uh, judgment would come down they would lose then mm. their access right to the land so i yeah. love that we're beginning this conversation about land because i often think about the bible as this long theology of the land it, mm -hmm. you know it, if you really deep like dive if you kind of pull apart all the things that are going on in the Bible, it really seems like at the end of the day, it's really this huge conversation about the land and God's relationship to the land and our relationship to the land in a lot of ways, right? And one of those issues that get brought up in within that then is immigration, people moving mm -hmm. around land, right? And one of the things that I love about the book is how much you actually engage scripture around that particular, uh, around immigration. Uh, and one of the things that we often hear from conservative evangelicals, um, and both of us were once those at one time, is that the Bible is clear about this and that. But if there really is one thing about the Bible is actually clear on, it's about immigration. And again, you just bring that out in this book so much. What do you think the abundance of biblical passages about immigration says about how we should think about how God understands immigrants and immigration? 
because there's just so much. Like it's almost overwhelming how much there actually is within scripture about immigration. And I think that says something about how we should think about it because God thinks about immigration in a certain way. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the first thing is there seems to be something in us that is deeply suspicious and prone to rejection of immigrants because there are so many verses that say things like, you must love the stranger for you yourselves were strangers in Egypt, Mm. uh, reminding them how they were treated when they were in a foreign land and how they should now treat the immigrant amongst them. And that God created an economy to provide not just for immigrants, but other people on the margins, the idea of gleaning, right, of leaving certain parts of the field untouched so that people who were on the margins of society, including immigrants, could go. And so there was like, there was so much that God created. It wasn't just the idea of giving people a, a command, but here, this is how you do it. And then later you have Jesus openly saying and fully identifying, you know, he doesn't say, hey, y'all, I want you to be really nice to immigrants and to people who are uh, without homes or, or who are in prison. Instead, he says, no, I am that very person. And, you know, in the evangelical world, we're taught to think so much about the second coming and the rapture, right? <laughs> that Jesus is coming back. But Jesus actually says, no, I'm already here and I'm in the person who is an immigrant. I am in the person who is a prisoner. I'm in the person who doesn't have a home, doesn't have food, doesn't have shelter or clothing. So, yeah, I am fully convinced of that. There's no we get a whole book of the Bible in the book of Ruth about what the blessing of a community when they honor this command to welcome the stranger. But what happens is we read it through other lenses, right? And we turn it into, oh, it's a pre-Jesus kind of story. (laughs) You know, it's a story about Mm. Jesus. And it's not a story suddenly about immigration, about what's actually happening in the text. And so, Mm. yes, there is so much. So I think it indicates, one, that we're prone to mistreating, rejecting, being suspicious of foreigners. But two, I think the overabundance says this really matters to the heart of God. This is not a a small thing. You know, this is not one of those things that's a one-off verse and you have to go digging around in Leviticus to find it. It's something that is repeated over and over and over again. And in fact, there's some theologians that see sort of the trajectory of the Bible. You know, we we know that people think of it as being lost to being found, right? Mm. From being oppressed to being free. And some people seeing it as being a stranger, an immigrant, and then to becoming part of the family of God. Mm. And that's all those stories are in there. And so, yeah, it's a powerful and living message. And it's one that Unfortunately, the church is largely ignoring. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In the beginning of the book, you talk about assimilation, which is obviously a very core part of the experience for for many immigrants, and, and especially in America. What did assimilation look like for you? Uh, because you do talk a little bit about your personal experience around that. And what mm-hmm. does it look like for you to be fully American and also fully Guatemalan? Because you talk a little bit about that, too, because seemed like that there was a revelation that occurred in your life at some point where you realized, right. oh, I don't have to, this doesn't have to be at odds with one another. Right. So I want to say that nobody ever pressured me to assimilate. It was something that I sort of felt in the ether, this idea of when I erased parts of myself or diminished them and behaved in a way that was comfortable to the dominant culture, then there were certain benefits from that. Mm. And I saw that in a lot of different ways. And so, 
you know, and I noticed that, for example, when I spoke Spanish in a public place and people would get upset. So I, I use that example. I noticed the way that people treated those who wore the culture on their sleeve, mm. you know, who were very open about, you know, where they came from and who they were. And I paid attention to all those signals and thought, well, I'm not going to behave that way because I want to be accepted. I want, you know, in to this club. Right. Mm. So for me, that was a big part of my upbringing was this is how it is. And it took me a long time to recognize, as you said, that it doesn't have to be this way. And it's a little bit of a, of a paradox, you know, it's the way that we say Jesus is fully man and uh, fully divine, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. In truth, most people are more comfortable with Jesus being fully divine. (laughs) They don't, (laughs) they, they don't like the human part because they'll deny any human action, right? That Jesus takes. Mm -hmm. So, but being an immigrant is a little bit like that, where you can be fully American and you can be fully also in my case, Guatemalan. And the fact is, is that you kind of, depending on who you're with and what the situation is like, that this is how you live and where you are. And I didn't know that for the longest time that you can integrate and you don't have to assimilate because assimilation is loss. But integration is gain, is being able to keep both. Mm. And so, yes, it was a really uh, difficult thing for me to learn. I would say it's probably what took me the longest, but also what did the most harm. I think people don't realize that when you tell parents of, you know, immigrant parents, don't teach your, your children, your native language, what you're doing is you're forcing assimilation on them. And this Mm -hmm. is a huge loss to the whole family. And so, and especially to the parents, how are they now supposed to have a relationship, communicate with their children? And so, yeah. And I draw in the book on the stories of Moses and, and Joseph in the old Testament. One of the things that I never really quite picked out as you're talking about immigration in the Bible is to see assimilation assimilation happen in the Bible. Can you talk a little bit about how assimilation plays out in the Bible? Because I, this isn't something that was really novel to me and I had no idea about, and I really appreciate you bringing that out. Yeah. So this was utterly shocking to me, but when I was writing my first book and I was doing research on different people in the Bible who I knew migrated, I came across a book by Walter Brueggemann. So I have to credit Dr. Brueggemann <laughs> here with a lot of these ideas, but it was really interesting because what you see in the story of Joseph that most of us are taught is, oh, you have this young man who was trafficked into you know, slavery and brought to Egypt. And his father was told he was dead, but he you know, believed God, trusted God, right? And in the end, he was brought out of prison and became this incredible leader. And the verse that everyone pulls out is, you know, what you intended for evil, God intended for good and end of story. But there are other things like, you know, Joseph's story contains multitudes and there are other stories in there as well. And what you, but we're not taught to look at is the fact that Joseph contributed to this food monopoly that Pharaoh created. I mean, Joseph was the architect of this economic system. Mm. And basically it's in the text, you know, and I cited all of it because I knew that this would be something really difficult for people. He is one of the heroes of the faith for so many people. And he still is for me, you know, he was flawed And he's allowed to be, he was a human being, right? And so here you have in this story, a man who allows first the Egyptians to give up their grain in preparation for the famine. You know, after the famine comes and everybody's in need, first they give up their grain, then they give up their land, and then they give up themselves. Mm. They become 
enslaved people to Pharaoh. And Joseph is the person who creates that system. And then he brings his own family, right? Well, his own family comes and he encourages them to come and to stay. And so this very system that he created is what then becomes the vehicle, the catalyst, right? For his own uh, descendants becoming enslaved people in Egypt and suffering in Egypt. And so it's, and it's interesting because what you see in his story is that he he gets an Egyptian name, Egyptian wife. He never makes any effort to leave when he becomes free. He spent all his adulthood, the majority of his life in Egypt. So for all intents and purposes, you have this man who is Egyptian and who fully identifies with his adopted culture. And to the point that he doesn't even question corrupt systems Mm. that are being uh, created. He just does what he's supposed to do for his country. And so he doesn't think about even blessing the common good or blessing everyone, blessing all the nations. He only thinks about Egypt, which is his home. And that's who he does good for. And really Egypt represented by Pharaoh. So everything that he does benefits Pharaoh ultimately. Mm. And it's not fun to read the story from that perspective, to see that aspect of it. Mm-hmm. And it, in fact, <laughs> a few months ago, I tried to like tweet out about it. Man, people were so upset. Even people who are, you know, people that you and I know that are very progressive. They're like, that's not a fair thing to say. Joseph suffered a lot. Joseph was, you know, an enslaved person. And, and yeah, it's upsetting to people. They don't like mm-hmm. to think of it that way. But it's there in the text. That reading exists. Mm-hmm. And so... I thought it was an interesting contrast with later you have Moses, who granted grew up in a whole different circumstance, also a Hebrew in Egypt, though, and he somehow never fully separates himself from his people. He is he's raised by Pharaoh's daughter. And yes, he has all this privilege, but somehow he sees his own life, his own future tied to that of the Hebrew people. Mm. And he could have just accepted the luxurious life, you know, and, and been okay, sort of a, a Ben Carson, if you will, <laughs> kind of situation, right? Like, hey, it's good for me. Uh, I'm sorry that it's not great for you all, but he doesn't. And, and he uses sort of the knowledge of both of these cultures and becomes one of the ideal people, I think one of, because there were other people as well, right? But he becomes sort of an ideal person to lead this movement or to help lead this movement out of Egypt. Mm. And partially because he has this intimate knowledge of Egyptian culture, but he never lost that Hebrew identity. That makes sense. And so, yeah, and I was very much... um I was really surprised, I think, as I was, I did not expect that. Moses has never been really one of my <laughs> favorite people in the Bible. You know, I always found him kind of, kind of cranky and kind of, um, yeah, kind of difficult, you know, just never, but, and his, it's interesting because when you look at these two people, Joseph has this sort of glorious end uh, where you know, he lives in Egypt, he's the right-hand man of Pharaoh, and, you know, he has this end in glory. And Moses does not have that kind of an end. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we know he's not even allowed to enter the promised land. And so, and he has this really hard calling, this really difficult life for his last, you know, 40 years of life, which is a long time. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's, sort of where I landed when I was talking about assimilation and the way that it can be harmful, because I see this all the time with, you know, I have family members who've really assimilated to American culture, but what they've really assimilated to is systems of, you know, whiteness, white, white supremacy Mm. is what they've assimilated to, to the point where they defend 
um, oppressive systems to the point where it's no longer questioning like, wait a minute, (laughs) this is actually not good. This is actually harming human beings. All of a sudden it becomes, no, I want to be recognized as one of them. I want to be fully in that club. And so Mm. I can't critique it. I can't, you know, I need to pretend that I'm white too. (laughs) Mm. And so this is the way it plays out in reality. When people ask me, what about Latinos for Trump? And I'm like, of course that exists because there are always people who are going to be lured in by whiteness, by the promises, right, of being an insider. You must be a mind reader because that's literally where I was about to go because I I was going to say this literally relates to your conversation later on in the book about the the good immigrant and the bad immigrant, right? Mm -hmm. And yeah, like about how assimilation can totally change the way that one understands themselves and how because of that they then can assimilate not to necessarily America but really specifically to whiteness and then all of a sudden they're even though they themselves are an immigrant they can actually take an anti-immigrant stance uh in in their politics I I just find that really interesting uh but Mm -hmm. yeah I think it really relates that conversation around the quote-unquote good immigrant and the quote-unquote bad immigrant right yeah and that's a big that's a big myth that exists as well it's kind of an unspoken myth but we all know what we mean right yeah. by i actually was in a place once where somebody toasted to me and said the good kind of immigrant and it actually happened to me and i was really shocked oh my God. <laughs> um i was like wow someone saying it out loud uh and of course you know it's not it's not a compliment it's a lot of of pressure that we put on people to not be able to be human mm-hmm. because they're supposed to be somehow better than the best U.S. citizen. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, extremely harmful. This episode of A People's Theology is brought to you by United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities. Are you considering exploring your faith more deeply, or are you called to ministry but haven't found a seminary that is quite right for you? When you come to United, you join a community that is intentionally open, socially aware, and theologically adventurous. United's passion is equipping leaders to make real, lasting change in the world through their many different degree programs, whether your vocation is in faith leadership, nonprofit leadership, academia, the arts, activism, or social entrepreneurship. And the best news is you don't have to uproot your life to attend seminary. United offers maximum flexibility to fit your schedule. Attend on campus or online, part-time or full-time. Their leading distance learning technology allows students to be active in the classroom and engaged with the United community. Want to learn more? Visit unitedseminary.edu forward slash a people's theology or click the link in the episode description and receive a $1,000 scholarship when you apply and are admitted. United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities, training leaders to dismantle systems of oppression, care for the spiritual needs of a multi-faith world, and push the boundaries of theology. Uh, In the middle of the book, you talk about how most of the theology you were formed in as you were growing up was by white men uh, because you were in white evangelicalism, as was I, right? You know, a lot of the listeners, I'm sure, can rattle off all the same names that you were formed by uh, because we all were, right? John Piper, John MacArthur, Mm -hmm. the whole, you know, the whole kit and caboodle. Who are some immigrant theologians besides yourself? And I definitely consider you a theologian. Who are some immigrant theologians that we should be reading and how have they shaped your theology? Sure. So, I mean, one of them, it depends on what you're looking at in terms of if you're looking at academic theology or more practical theology. So I'll give you a few from both, I guess. (laughs) But uh, more practical theology, I think you're looking at people like Kat Armas. And I don't Mm. know if you've talked to Kat. I've definitely talked to Kat. She's amazing. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Kat is a, uh, you know, she's a biblical scholar, and that is her area is uh, thinking about the colonial thought, especially. And so she is an example, I think, of a really great, like, practical theologian. Um, there's Noemi Vega, who is, yeah, Noemi is working on her PhD and almost done, but she's also a really excellent Mexican American theologian. And I mean, there's a lot happening right now that to me is really exciting. A lot of people publishing, 
and writing their books. I have a good friend. Her name is Aurelia Davila Pratt, who just published a book as well. A very great, you know, practical theology uh, book called The Brown Girl's Epiphany. Uh, and it's about that sense of identity that we all need and that we're all looking for. And academically, so there is, you know, I, I cite a lot of people in the book. I try to primarily use uh, people of color as theologians mm -hmm. uh, that I uh, quote in the book. And there are some white men. The thing is, I'm not against people reading white men. <laughs> I'm just again, I'm just in favor of people kind of expanding who they read, mm. like adding some different voices in. Because I think all of us are made in God's image. All of us have good things to say, but you know, for the most part, <laughs> let's not say all of us, <laughs> many of us, <laughs> many of us. Right. So, yeah, I think Brueggemann is a great example, you know, of someone who is brilliant that I've learned a lot from about the Hebrew Bible, John Golden Gay, another a really great guy. But in this book, part of what I read too was um, theologian called Oscar Garcia Johnson. And he writes a lot about, he wrote a book, that was really interesting where he talks about something called the colonial wound mm. and uh, he's writing specifically about Latin America. And um, it was really, really powerful. Um, I found a very, a really um, something that, you know, you read it and you, it rings true because he talks about the way that we, this wound has been inflicted on us, you know, and it mostly comes out in the form of white supremacy, even in Latin America. And it's a wound that we keep reproducing uh, generation after generation instead of, you know, healing it. And so, but there's lots of great people right now. Elizabeth Conde Frazier, Alexia Salvatierra as well. She's a really great theologian. So, yeah, so, so those are some of the people that I have really learned a lot from. And I would say one of the things about you know, Latinx, there's a real difference between American, you know, Latinx people and Latin Americans that are in mm. Latin America right mm. now. And I got a sense of that this summer as well, because what happens is our, our culture is very communal, whether it's there or here. And a lot of theology is done in community. So if you think about the way that we take theology to the streets, uh, in, in Latin America, for example, what do we do with posadas? We literally enact the journey of Mary and Joseph in the streets. And mm -hmm. we go from house to house looking for shelter, looking for the inn that will let them in, right? Pilgrimage is another spiritual practice that's really common in our culture. Mm -hmm. And again, it's an actual embodied practice. It's not just something you sit in your room and think about it's you you go you journey and the the there's something happening spiritually right as part of that journey fasting another really big practice so there's a lot in our community that is embodied but also there's a lot that happens communally and so we say in conjunto is how theology is done so a lot of the things in the what, book what is I try in conjunto to, uh translate in to? conjunto yeah it means sort of in community, in in a group. Okay. In a group. Yeah. I love I love so. I just love the word cajunto. That's just a great word. <laughs> yeah, I'll send it to you. In conjunto. It's a really great um so yeah, I talk about that in the introduction to the book that a lot of the chapters in the book were born in conversations mm. um with other Latinas mostly, some Latinos as well, but it was born in that in those communal conversations that we that we had and so it really a lot of the thinking in the a book I have to credit you know those people and I credit them with the acknowledgement and I quote them throughout the book because really that's how that's how it happened that's how mm -hmm. the ideas began sort of forming for me and I right. would write them down and think about them and so yeah there's a lot of good things happening I wish there were more more people writing about immigration specifically, but in Latin America, no theologians are really writing about that. There's a lot of great theology happening. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. I really am excited by that. And 
it's part of the reason I'd like to pursue more theological education around a theology of right. migration or an ancestral memory. Right. Like I said at the beginning, I really do think you're a theologian. I, I do think you are paving a particular path within theology that is really important, and that's why I'm just such a big fan of you. I just think what you're doing is so, so important because there aren't a lot—I mean, that's not to say that there aren't anybody. There isn't anybody out there uh, talking about theology and immigration, but you really are in a lot of ways carving that path. You're the, the sort of trailblazer, if you will— and I think that's so important. And I'm just so excited that you actually are doing that. Thanks, Mason. I appreciate that. So along those lines, we've talked about the theologians, right? The the people who are mm-hmm. writing the stuff down that are and but you also talked about the practical things that people do around, you know, theology and especially how Latin America does theology. What are the practical things that a listener can do right now? that would be the Christian response to immigration. Um, I'm thinking, for example, uh, the the church that I am a part of in Minneapolis uh, years ago uh, uh, became a sanctuary church, which they use their their status as a religious organization to house people who are being threatened to be deported. Um, th- that's just one example of many where somebody who maybe as a part of a church can urge their church to become a sanctuary church. What are some other practical things that a person can right now pause this this podcast episode and they can later on, you know, listen to it, but pause it right now and they can actually start <laughs> doing some stuff uh, that would be doing really good work in immigration in their community? Well, so one of the things that you can do is uh, volunteer with resettlement agencies mm. and, and there's a resettlement agency anywhere you live. I promise you, unless you're <laughs> unless you're looking for, you know, you live in Beverly Hills or something, they don't resettle refugees there. I can guarantee you that. (laughs) So you can look up refugee resettlement agencies in your area and you can volunteer to assist either an individual or a family or couple with resettlement because one of the hardest things about refugees when they come here is many don't have any what we call familial ties. Mm -hmm. And so they're literally just dropped, you know, they're dropped in Baltimore or Columbus, Ohio, or wherever uh, they happen to be. And that is now home and they have to build a life there. And so there's so many things about American culture that you and I know how to do just because we live here and we don't think about it. So for example, what do you do at a parent teacher conference? Uh, You know, I remember when I was in high school my parents, I was getting ready for the prom, like the junior prom. And my parents also were getting ready. They thought they were coming with me. And I was like, oh, no, you guys don't come. <laughs> I never had explained to them, this is only for like other students, you know, <laughs> parents don't come to this because they were used to a sort of end of year celebration where the parents would get to come as well. Mm. And so, and that was their frame of mind. And so yeah. think about something as simple as a uh, parent-teacher conference. I hope they did like their own prom somewhere else where they enjoyed their time. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so you can assist individuals and you can do it for as long as you want or or not. If you want to just be part of a welcome team that goes to the airport and greets a family and helps them to find their home, you know, you bring them to their apartment or housing and you help them settle in, show them, you know, where all the light switches are and everything. That's fine. Or if you want to commit to something longer where you help people, you kind of come alongside them or you become a language partner, whatever the case may be. So there's lots of things that you can do if you want to resettle. You can also give to organizations that provide legal services. That's one of the most challenging things for people mm. is those petitions are expensive. The legal services are inexpensive, but there's just a, so much need. Mm-hmm. And so often these organizations need support to be able to hire more people to do nonprofit kind of law. So yeah, those are some of the things that you can do like right now. And I think the biggest thing that I would encourage is to, is to first be, to first really consider what is it that you really believe about immigration? 
because a lot of people are sort of, you know, we, you and I talked about how it's very biblical, this message of welcoming immigrants and doing justice for immigrants. But a lot of people are sort of swept. They say that there's 20% of people who are rabidly (laughs) anti-immigrant and 20% who are very pro. And then there's about 60% in the middle, which is the majority who kind of don't know what to think. And these are the people who are most easily influenced. If all their friends are Trump supporters, for example, they would go with that group. Mm -hmm. And so I'd really challenge people to just really consider what is it that I really believe about immigration? Where did I learn this? And does this really jive with what the Bible says? Mm. Because if I'm a Christian, this should matter to me, what this book says about how to treat immigrants. And I think that's really important because you want to engage with people not out of a sense of your own mercy or compassion, although it's fine to feel those things, but also it's more important to feel a sense of shared humanity. Mm. These are fellow human beings. Uh, They're not my objects of charity. Um, They have gifts and talents and skills just like I do, but they also have needs right now. You Mm -hmm. know, they love their children just as much as I do, but they come from a different culture you know? And mm-hmm. so, yeah, I think that's also really important to do. It's, it's important to act as well. And I, you know, I support that. I tell the story there about a woman who did a lot <laughs> to act on behalf of immigrants, but sort of didn't question the, the inner inside, the messages she'd internalized, mm-hmm. right. About them. Well, sort of speaking along that sort of inside, like, what do we believe about this? And this is the question I have uh, where I'm like, let's bookmark this. And it really does kind of center around the the land ownership aspect that you brought up earlier. But I am curious that it does seem as if the creation of a nation state is what mm-hmm. creates immigrants in the first place, right? The fact that there is an America, there is a Mexico, there is a Canada, and so on and so forth, right? There are these nation states that are created. And that is what creates immigration because we draw these socially constructed borders, right? Like a lot of times, like none of those borders actually really exist, even geographically. We just draw that and we say, well, that's Canada and this is America and this is Mexico. And all of a sudden, if you cross that line that we just created, now you are an immigrant, right? So it Mm -hmm. is creating immigrants. And it creates a lot of violence, as we see, especially when it comes yeah. to America and the, the southern border that we've drawn in line and said this exists. Right. And it creates a lot of violence. It kills a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, like. We, there's a lot of really good things that we can do as we exist as a nation state. But if you were to ideally like think of a world and imagine a world. It does seem like the only way we can imagine that people moving around from land to land, the only way to do that where there isn't going to be all this violence is to actually eliminate the nation state altogether. Uh, And I don't know if you really dive so much into that in the book, but I'm really curious around your thoughts around that. Uh, Again, like that might not necessarily be like where you really want to focus your attention, but it Mm -hmm. does seem to be a thing where we might need to actually reimagine the way we think about all of these nation states that like we actually might have to get rid of them if we don't want to continue to create this violence that happens when it comes to immigration and people moving from land to land. Oh, absolutely. I found out in the, you know, research for this book, the three most violent borders in the world are Israel, Palestine, Mm -hmm. Pakistan, and India, and the U S Mexico border. Those are the Mm -hmm. most violent borders that exist. And I absolutely agree. In the book, I actually say that. Should Christians, because you know, there's this whole movement of Christians who are like, oh, yes, we can have welcoming policies and secure borders. I'm like, can we though? Mm. Can we really? Mm. I don't really think so. So in the book, one of the things that I, you know, you know, a friend who's a conservative who writes and speaks a lot um, on this issue told me, I just can't with that line. You said you advocate that Christians should be advocating for the erasure of borders, not for secure borders. And I said, yeah, I think that's what I 
believe and really the land was never supposed to be used to exploit to hoard resources Mm -hmm. right to oppress people but that's what it has turned into and borders are a part of that they're the Mm -hmm. result of that so now the united states has taken all these resources and now they're saying no you can't we've taken your resources but now (laughs) you can't come into our country even though we have a lot of jobs and we don't have enough workers Mm -hmm. you still can't come in uh, can't come in here and you can't find safety, even though we have asylum laws. There's this whole contradiction around asylum. And I I absolutely agree that we should. And honestly, in the book, another great Latin American theologian, uh, Miguel de la Torre, you know, he talks about this. Um, Who's also been a guest on this podcast. Great, yes, great theologian. I did. I heard, I heard that podcast. He talks about this like theology para joder or the theology of i'm going to say it nicely messing with the system because there's a kind <laughs> I, of i can put an e next oppressive. to this episode if you really want to say the real thing <laughs> he calls it all right he calls it the theology of fuck it <laughs> of messing with the system and basically what he says is that there is a hope that is oppressive because change never comes. You keep hoping and hoping for immigration policy reform. You keep hoping that the DREAM Act will be passed and nothing ever changes. And so what he actually says is people on the margins of society have always done this. They have always messed with the system. And what that means is, is you undermine it in subversive ways. And you see this happening. You see a lot of people doing this with immigration now because they're tired of waiting. And look, I'm not saying people who advocate on Capitol Hill shouldn't keep doing that. I'm just saying, let's throw everything at it, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. everything at it. And so I'm just not one of those people who has put a lot of hope in Mitch McConnell and Joe Biden. I just don't think it's going to come from there. Right. But what you do see is you see people doing things. So in the UK, for example, there are people who stand up on deportation flights, like British people, and refuse to let the plane take off. And these are deportation flights to Africa or the Caribbean, usually. Mm-hmm. And they refuse. They refuse to what sit down. What a really so interesting was, way to protest. That's great. Yeah. And so then the flight can't take off. In the U.S., they would bring a marshal in and they would <laughs> take you away. But I guess they don't do that in the U.K. So the flight cannot take off because people are standing. And you've seen this uh, here in the U.S. There's a bunch of Catholic women went to the Capitol and just sat on the Capitol floor in those metallic blankets they gave to children in detention when they separated families. Mm-hmm. And they refused to leave. They arrested all these Catholic women and, and some of them nuns for this protest. You know, we're just going to take over this space. Uh, we want you to see what it is you do to people, mm-hmm. you know, and there's communities that will just surround you know, um, ice trucks and refuse to let them take their neighbors away. Mm -hmm. And this is a way that we mess with the system for good, for justice, for the well-being of our neighbors. It's not anarchy. (laughs) And and De La Torre is very, very clear on that. It's really for for the common good, Mm -hmm. for the well-being of others. And this is where we have to be. So there are people who don't have any problem, you know, they go to Arizona and drop off water in the desert, even though it's illegal to do that. And they help migrants. They find a migrant in need and they bring them into their home. And I think that that's God's work. Why would you think it's okay to abandon a person in the desert alone? Mm. You know, that is not, how is that loving your neighbor in any way? And so Mm. these are some of the ways that we can undermine the system. We live in a world with borders. That is unfortunate. I talk in the book how literally El Paso and Juarez were one city and they just built the border right through the middle. They just randomly decided the border goes here and just divided this community. And Mm. it's been extremely harmful, you know, this, this division. So yeah, those are some of the ways. And I wish we could go back to a time Uh, I think it's interesting in studying borders, I found out that uh, borders came about 
because of the religious wars in Europe, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, all the killing of Protestants and Catholics, right? So they finally decided, okay, France is Catholic <laughs> and England is Protestant. If you're a Protestant, go there. And if you're, you know, if you're a Catholic, go here. It was supposed to be a way for people to be safe <laughs> initially. And then later things changed and we got passports and visas and all these different things to now where we have these very hardened kind of borders. But initially they were very soft kind of things. It was just supposed to provide refuge for people, escape from persecution from all these religious wars that went on for hundreds of years. Uh, Last couple of questions. How do you hope that this book inspires and liberates its readers? Really, liberation was what I was looking for in this book. I feel like so many people think, oh, yeah, I support immigrants. I care about immigrants. I, you know, I think we should welcome them. And that's sort of the end of what they think about this whole issue that is talked about in the Bible so much. And so I wanted to move people past that, you know, beyond, Mm -hmm. right? And that's why it's called Beyond Welcome, because I wanted people to really consider what does it mean then? How do I need to change? How do I need to regard my neighbor? How do I think about things like land and hospitality? How do I think about these myths that are in the air that I just absorbed and that I perpetuate? And I know this because I go to churches and I see the way that people respond. There's a reason why immigration advocates only tell certain stories when they go, because they know what people are going to respond to. And so I want people to really challenge themselves, not just think about what they can do practically, right, or what they support politically, but to really challenge, because I think addressing that will help address a lot of different things in their lives, not just the way they treat immigrants, or perhaps the way they engage with people experiencing homelessness, Mm. perhaps the way they engage with people who are in prison. There's a lot of people on the margins and there's a lot of assumptions that people make, right. Mm. About these groups of people. And so that's really what I want is for people to be freer, to love their neighbor as well. Mm -hmm. Because right now, if there is love at all, is always in a sort of charity kind of way of I help you instead of a reciprocal kind of way of, no, I am here. I care for you. And you also care for me. You have things to offer me mm-hmm. as well. So, yeah. I love that. Love that. Last question, Karen. How can listeners get connected to you and your work? Sure. So you can find me on the interwebs, mostly Twitter and Instagram. I don't really post on Facebook very much, but as um, we all I am should at... not be doing very often. <laughs> no, look, if it wasn't for my agent, I would leave Facebook altogether. If it wasn't for publishing. <laughs> so it's at underscore Karen J. Gonzalez. It's the same on Instagram and Twitter. And I also have a website, uh, Karen-Gonzalez.com. And yeah, that's mostly where you can find me these days, musing about theology and rooting for the Dodgers. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. You're, you're getting close to playoff time. Where would you like listeners to get your book? That's what I want to know. Oh, okay. So anywhere that's convenient to them would be great. Um, but if they can get it from like bookshop.org, that would be great um, because it, it, does help independent bookstores to continue to survive so we're not taken over by Jeff Bezos. So that would be fantastic. Lovely, lovely. Well, Karen, thank you so much for chatting a little bit more about the book. I love it. I mean, anything around immigration, you're the go-to person. This is the go-to book. I'm really excited for you uh, as you explore this more uh, with your uh, with your further studies. This is going to be really excited. I can't wait to hear a little bit more about uh, all the things that are going to come out uh, of of your studies a little bit more. Uh, so yeah, thank you so much for chatting it, uh, chatting a little bit more about it. And again, you're one of my favorite people in the world, and I'm so excited uh, that I got to hang out with you for even just an hour. Thanks, Mason. This was great.
If you would like to connect with Karen and her work, you can find links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Menega. And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates.